Today, we're exploring the genre of survival games. Hey everyone, welcome to the 76th episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. I'm your host, Zaccavelli. You can find me on uh, X. You can find me on X. So stupid. <laughs> you can find me on X at underscore Zaccavelli underscore or tune in for live game dev sessions over on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Zaccavelli underscore. We also have a community Discord. There'll be a link for that in the show notes. And by the time this episode comes out, that means our yearly team jam will be done, which is where a bunch of people from our community get together, get match made into random teams, and make games. And those games will be playable uh, by the time this episode comes out. So yeah, look out for announcements in that in the community Discord. I think the playable announcement or whatever with all the links and stuff will come out on Wednesday that would be August 2nd. So yeah, keep an eye out for that. Anyways, with the intro out of the way, let's move on over to the Game Dev Challenge. The Game Dev Challenge is the part of the show where I provide a prompt to the listeners, and it's intended to be like a 15-minute exercise to help cement the themes of the show. Last episode was about the money side of indie game dev, and we talked about doing a little bit of market research and picking the right genres if you're really looking to do it for uh, commercial success. The prompt for episode 75 was to do some market research and make a case for a genre that either has a very high revenue outlook or a very low revenue outlook. Um, and I plugged the website Gamalytic, which, by the way, I, I wasn't paid to plug or anything like that. I genuinely use that tool. It's a very good tool, and it's free. Anyways, the winner of the Game Dev Challenge for episode 75 is Snixo. And it's actually really uh, fortuitous, I guess, that Snixo won uh, because the genre that they chose, that they discovered, I guess is open-world survival craft. Snixos post says, according to Gamalytic, the open-world survival craft genre is, a fairly, is fairly small, having 425 games across all publishers and 254 among in, amongst indies. Compared to the entire industry, the price breakdown for the open-world survival craft games has a pretty high outlook for indie publishers. Snixo quotes a price, a median revenue calculation of $133,000 and a top 5% of $10 million. Along with these figures, Snixo goes on to say, it appears that only 1.6% of these games by indie publishers have sold less than 100 copies. Which that was surprising, actually, for me to uh, find out reading this post. Snixo goes on to say, the highest sections, meaning the ones with the the kind of breakdowns with the most share, I guess, is uh, between uh, 1,000 and 10,000 at 28% and 10,000 and 50,000 at 24%. So 50% of the games um, in this genre sell between 1,000 copies and 50,000 copies. 
What this tells me is that there's a high demand for this genre of game and people are willing to buy them for an average of $14.46, especially from indie publishers. Now, all of these numbers are looking really good. You're probably listening to this right now and you're like, geez, I need to make a... <laughs> I need to make an open world survival craft. 50% chance. Uh, go listen to my last episode to kind of learn more about that fallacy. But Snixo was wise to put in a kind of a caveat here at the end. Another thing to mention is that open world games could be a very strong lift to develop, especially for a small indie team. Perhaps this is why there's so much less indie games in this genre. However, with techniques like procedural generation, this type of game could be much more feasible for a smaller team. Later in this episode today, we're going to talk about the most successful indie game of all time, Minecraft. And if you'll remember, I mean, all the way back in the prototype days, I believe... Minecraft was worked on uh, solo by Notch. I think there were some people that helped along the way, and certainly now Minecraft is managed by a very large team. But yeah, I don't think it's impossible for a solo developer to make an open world game. I think it is a hard and heavy lift, but I think it's very doable. And thanks to uh, Snixo's market research, we can see that, uh, yeah, maybe it would be a good investment of your time. If only you knew how to make an open world survival game. If only there was some sort of analytical look at what makes a survival game good. Some kind of guide or something. Oh well, I guess we'll just uh, move on. Congrats to uh, Snixo for winning the episode 75 Game Dev Challenge. For episode 76, the prompt is... Pitch a survival game starting with the target dynamics and working from there. Later in today's episode, we're going to talk about how dynamics, I think, are the strength of survival games and maybe give a few examples of how games uh, rely on their strengths starting with the dynamics and how I think it's a good idea to design a survival game actually starting with the dynamics, which is maybe a little bit different than other kinds of genres of games. So anyways, if you want to start the path to selling 50,000 copies, <laughs> I sound like a, like a course salesman. <laughs> if you want to start the path according to Snixo's research, maybe pitching your idea in the Game Dev Challenge is a good first step. So after listening to today's episode and kind of knowing where you want to go, just go on over to the community Discord. There's a link to that in the show notes and pitch your game in the Game Dev Challenge section. With the Game Dev Challenge out of the way, let's move on over to the body of the episode. Today we're doing a genre study on survival games. Now, survival games have exploded in popularity in the last decade. And although there's been survival elements in games for a long time, this episode's going to focus more on recent developments of the genre. Main examples might be things like Minecraft, Rust, Ark, DayZ, Raft, Valheim, and Subnautica. There's a million of them. And to be honest, I think it's such a large genre um, because we have such a large degree and variance of what exactly makes a survival game. But if I had to boil down the core mechanics, I would say the core mechanics are resource gathering, crafting, building shelters, caring for your character's needs like food and water, and surviving against environmental hazards and maybe even other players. But these mechanics alone are not what I think made this genre blow up and continued to be loved by millions of players. 
I actually think with survival games, it's not about the individual mechanics. I would even argue that mechanics in some of these games are quite clunky and not expertly executed. I think the strength of these games, rather, comes from their dynamics and systems, the kind of bigger picture stuff. And my goal with this episode today is to explain and frame that so you as the listener know exactly what I mean and you can hopefully adapt this to your game if it suits it. There's a good lesson to be learned here that will not only let us analyze and celebrate survival games, but also learn about the power of dynamics and systems. So let's get started by looking specifically at a few examples of the strength of the genre. The first thing is something I would qualify as a system, and it's a systemic strength in most of these survival games, and I would say that is a satisfying progression loop. Survival games have an excellent progression system sort of baked into the idea. The idea of being lost in the wilderness, starting with absolutely nothing, and slowly gathering better gear and building bigger bases feels very rewarding. Your first day of surviving as a player, you barely have any food and water. You're afraid of monsters and animals. You build like just a little shack for shelter. And as you're huddled in your shack listening to the scary noises of your first night, you start planning and setting goals. Tomorrow I'm gonna explore. I'm gonna get an idea for what resources are around. Maybe I'll get my food and water situation stable. Maybe I'll improve my shelter, etc., etc. The idea of a survival game has both short-term progression in your day-to-day activities and long-term progression in your longer goals. Your day-to-day stuff might be like, I'm hungry and I need food now, or that monster is trying to kill me and I have to do something about that right now. And those small short-term progressions actually build up into a longer-term progression. And it's very satisfying to have those small loops build into a bigger loop. A longer-term progression might be something like, remember when I lived in that little shack and now I have this awesome mansion on the beach? And the player can reflect on all those shorter loops of them gathering the materials for the mansion and the time that the monsters came to break part of it and you had to repair it. In survival games like this, the player typically and sort of naturally sets their own goals. And what I think is really interesting about that is in most of these games, you don't have to explicitly tell or even have specific mechanics for this. This is like a dynamic or emergent system, something that is so intuitive that you don't really need to explain. If you place a human in an unfamiliar and wild place, They'll just naturally explore and pick a base camp and build a shelter. I think that part is really interesting, and I think it's a very good core strength of these games. The fun of that progression is built into the idea. And even though it's almost innate, um, that's not to say that you can't eliminate some of the friction. For example, in Minecraft, there's achievements and milestone tracking. These act as little incentives and reminders to help guide you so that you don't get too lost. The player can, of course, totally ignore them, uh, but they work as a good safety net. It's nice to see that little thing pop up when you knock down your first tree with your hands or whatever. Or maybe one day the player goes to play and they can't really think of anything to do. They're not really inspired to do anything. Lucky for them, there's a list of milestones to help spark them. Now, 
One way you can help spark a player is to play with the intensity of the short-term progression. One of my favorite games that does this is DayZ. DayZ is a zombie apocalypse multiplayer survival game set in a former Soviet Union country. It is gritty and has many simulation elements. Uh, the original game was actually a mod for a military sim game called Arma 2. If you played DayZ, the mod for Arma 2 way back in the day, you know it was just like a different legendary experience, but that's a whole video game history thing. Now there is a standalone version of DayZ, and it's pretty good. It's been out for quite some time. I enjoy it. I realize it's not for everyone, but in DayZ, you have to constantly take care of your character's health, much like a real-life scenario like this. Food and water can be scarce. And I think the designers actually designed the food and water system to constantly apply pressure to the player. It feels like you are always hungry or thirsty. And this leads to some really cool dynamics. For example, maybe you break into a abandoned grocery store and you find some canned goods. Because food is so scarce, finding these canned goods is like finding an epic piece of loot in a RPG game. You are so happy when you find this food, and maybe you're playing with a friend and you're like, man, we are going to have a feast, and then we don't have to worry about the food or the water for a while, and we can go do some more extreme content. And right when you guys are talking about that, you hear someone at the door. Over the proximity chat, someone says, hey, I saw you guys run in there earlier. Is there any food in there? What do you do? Do you stay quiet and act like nobody's there? Do you lie to him and say, there's no food in here? <laughs> Will they believe you if you lie? Maybe you help this person out and you share. With three people, maybe you can survive a little easier. Or maybe it's just another mouth to feed. Me personally, I would say something like, nah, I think someone's been here already. There's no food and they took everything. Uh, we're going to run over to the school though and see if there's any food over there if you want to come with. If he agrees to join you, you can think to yourself, this is a win-win. He'll either help us find food at the school, or he'll become food. <laughs> the stresses of the food meter in Daisy takes a person to a dark place. And that brings me to the next strength of survival games, which is dynamic and emergent gameplay and interactions, particularly in social settings. One of the best parts of DayZ is the social gameplay. It is really fun to roleplay, and because of the game's short-term goals for food and water incentives, I guess you could call them, it really makes you have these apocalyptic survival emergent situations with real people. Some of the craziest villains, coolest heroes, and wholesomest characters I've ever met in any video game has been in DayZ, and they were all played by real players. This emergent roleplay is amazing and something specifically I love about DayZ. I've been robbed from my sole possession, a roll of duct tape. I've listened to a radio show of cannibals that were using the loudspeaker and radio system to broadcast an interview show where at the end of the show, they kill their guest and eat them live on the air. I've met vigilante heroes who seem like they're straight out of The Walking Dead who have rescued and helped me survive, and I've gone on adventures with them. DayZ is one of those games that I was alluding to earlier when I was saying a strength of these games is not necessarily in the mechanics. 
Daisy itself is quite clunky and has many bugs. It's gotten better over its long development period, but it's still far from a mechanically polished game. At one point when I played, ladders were by far the most dangerous thing in the game. It felt like just touching one would break every bone in your body if you were lucky and it didn't kill you. Once I was playing on a server and an admin put out a PSA announcement, uh, but of course in Daisy roleplay style, they did it in character. They roleplayed as an advocate of the dangers of ladders, swearing revenge because, quote, ladders killed his whole family. <laughs> Only in Daisy does a game-breaking bug turn into a roleplay opportunity. I, I hope I didn't drone on about Daisy for too long. It's one of my favorite games, uh, and I was just hoping to stress the idea of it mechanically, it's not that good. It's not a mechanically sound game, I would say. That's not to say it's horrible. It's just, you know, it's it's just, it's okay, I guess. The magic of Daisy is made in the social interactions and emergent gameplay. Again, it's a case of the dynamics of the game shining rather than specifically the mechanics. And it's yet another example of that being a core strength in a survival game. Now, this dynamic doesn't always have to be placed on social gameplay. There are plenty of single-player survival games that, because the way they are set up and designed, they create these dynamic and emergent gameplay moments that are awesome, without the need for other players. Look to examples like Subnautica. In Subnautica, you play as a spaceship crash survivor on an ocean planet, and you have to try and survive on this ocean world. As you might imagine, this alien ocean is teeming with life. Whether it be a reef area with lots of cute and creepy fauna, to the deep ocean with Leviathan-class nightmare fuel. Mechanically, these animals are little more than AI characters that populate a space. But due to the awesome presentation and environmental design, these things come to life and turn the dynamics and the aesthetics of the game into something more. It creates moments like in Avatar The Way of Water where you're swimming amongst these reef fish aliens and exploring this colorful fauna. It also creates those moments where you're looking at the deep ocean abyss, an endless void beneath you with who knows what living down there. Couple these awesome dynamics and aesthetics with a great progression system like we talked about before. I really enjoy the system of having to upgrade your oxygen tanks. Uh, basically, you start off with only being able to explore a small area before having to surface for oxygen. But you can craft better and better oxygen tanks that allow you to explore deeper and deeper. When you mix this solid progression with the dynamics I talked about before, you get something pretty special. In real life, I have a phobia of deep water. Exploring the deep areas triggers that feeling. I don't like it. It's like a it's a horror game. And I always say the golden rule is to evoke emotion from your players in your games. And I've never had a game evoke a phobia of like that of mine to the point where I basically ignore entire chunks of content. And that's fine. I'll stick to the shallow reef parts uh, that make me feel like I'm in like a tropical vacation. And I'm going to stay away from the deep scary ocean parts. And I think that's going to provide a smooth transition into the next strength of the genre, which I think is the freedom of the player. I think one thing that really resonates with players about survival games 
is the fantasy of being mostly free to do whatever you want. If you think about it, survival games are the most open of open world games. The player is usually allowed to set their own goals and approach the challenges in any way they want. And I think that's what's so appealing. And this idea doesn't just have to be applied to the openness of the environment. Games like Raft, where you're adrift in the ocean on only a small raft, or the Skyblock Minecraft Challenge, are examples of relatively closed environments, but open possibilities for solving the challenge. The player freedom is another one of those things that is sort of built into the game's idea. I think you just have to make sure that it's worth having the freedom, if that makes sense. Give the player something to explore. Make sure there's cool monuments or cool land generation that results in interesting things to see and do. If you do that, you won't have to focus so much on telling the player what to do. Uh, they'll find fun things to do on their own. So I hope with many of those examples, I made my main point clear. The strength of survival games is not their mechanics, but the dynamics of the game. This can be social interactions, environmental constraints, freedom for the player to set their own goals, short and long-term progression, interesting AI character dynamics. Yeah, when you boil it down, the strengths of these games are in their dynamics. So if I was making a survival game, I think I would start by designing a core dynamic first and then coming up with the mechanics to support that. For example, I might say, well, this multiplayer survival game, uh, a dynamic I want to go for is the idea of common defense. I want the players to have a moment where they all must come together, self-organize, and defend themselves against something that they couldn't defend themselves against alone. It would be cool, for example, if they had to pool their resources. Like player one has a nice castle, but player two has stockpiled a bunch of arrows. Then with this idea, we can make a mechanic that supports that dynamic. Maybe we go to like a blood moon mechanic where every seven nights of the day, night cycle, a blood moon happens and monsters spawn in hordes that are very aggressive. Maybe we create a special item like a crystal or something and there's only one crystal, and if the monsters touch it, the world is destroyed. This means that it's in every player's best interest to defend the one crystal. I can imagine the players all coming together and over the in-game voice chat saying, uh, The Blood Moon is tomorrow night. Let's have a meeting where we can discuss how we're going to defend the crystal. Maybe they get into arguments. Maybe they're like, well, my castle's bigger. The crystal should go in my castle. And the other person says, well, we're better at fighting. And yeah, I think this leads to really cool social dynamics and even gameplay dynamics about base defense and allowing strangers to come into your castle, hoping they don't steal stuff, but also defend it. It's just, I think it's a cool idea for a survival game. And it starts with that core idea of the common defense dynamic. And that's what I mean when I say start with a dynamic for a survival game and go from there. Now that we've discussed the strengths of the survival game genre, let's discuss some of its weaknesses. Earlier I mentioned that core progression is sort of built into the survival game idea. You start with nothing and you gather your resources to improve your status to build a house, to craft weapons, to gather faster, etc, etc. And this, I think, is a good thing, 
However, it does sort of have a design trap built in, and that is that the pacing of your entire game depends on the rate at which you collect resources. Your game's pacing could be ground to an absolute halt if it takes too long to get the resources and it becomes more like a chore and not fun. But if it's on the other end of the spectrum and it's too fast, you can get all the resources you want in seconds, then it feels unrewarding and like a cheap mechanic that doesn't really have a purpose. Now, in some ways, having the gather speed knob be dependent on one thing is actually a good problem. That means that it's easily adjustable, but that also means there's one point of failure. So you're gonna to wanna to make sure that you nail down this resource gather speed and get it so that it's in that Goldilocks zone of not too slow, but not too fast. I think it's a good idea to design the game so that the resource gather speed is adjustable by the player via the game mechanics. Using the right tool to chop wood versus stone, for instance, in Minecraft. Or maybe upgrading your tools to a better quality. If the player can control uh, whether or not they're in that Goldilocks zone, that'll take some of the frustration out of it. You can kind of undertune it slightly so you're not in that too fast part of it and allow the player to put themselves in better situations by making the right choices, using an axe to chop wood, for instance. One of my favorite examples of this sort of adjustable gather speed comes from a game called Ark Survival Evolved. Ark is a survival game where you can tame dinosaurs. It's one of my favorites, and something that I think is really cool is that you don't just tame the dinosaurs to fight. You tame some of them to help you with gathering. They have utility. One painful thing you have to do a lot in this game is gather a bunch of berries to make special narcotics used to knock out the dinosaurs in the taming process. Naturally, bigger dinosaurs require more narco, and more narco requires a ton of berries. It's extremely tedious and grindy to gather all of these berries by hand. Lucky for you, you can tame other herbivorous dinosaurs that can gather hundreds of berries in a single swipe. The design has a sort of built-in ramping of a gather speed. So when you're building bigger buildings and taming larger dinos, your gather speed can be ramped to meet those needs. And thus the game's gather speed stays in that Goldilocks zone. So yeah, just make sure you consider your resource generation mechanics and the speed and pacing associated with them. Okay, this episode's getting a little bit long, but I wanted to address one more weakness that I actually don't know if it's fair to call it a weakness, but it brings up a fun design challenge. And that is that multiplayer PvP is extremely hard to balance. Someone who has played for longer and has more resources or someone that has more resources because they're in a bigger group than you has a significant advantage. And it's hard for you as the player to overcome this. Oftentimes, PvP multiplayer survival games have servers that are dominated by a single group. They control all the good resource areas. They've stockpiled plenty of weapons. They've built massive complexes to protect their stuff. And it's just really hard to balance it so that it's not always the meta to just get in a giant group and play for a bunch of hours to dominate. The problem with this is that it means newcoming players or someone on the outside of the big group has to be extremely dedicated to overcome this. And maybe this person is someone who only has an hour every day after work to play. It's not going to work for them. Also, a quick side note, I think it's really funny how in a real-life survival situation, 
uh, this is exactly how it would play out, right? You'd have one group, a big group of people sort of dominate the resources. And if you were on the outside of the group, you would just be very disadvantaged. I think it's just really interesting to see this very human behavior repeated in these games. Yeah, kind of a side note, but also interesting. Anyways, a good solution to this is just to include a single-player offline mode so that the player can enjoy the game on their own time. But it does bring up a fun design challenge to say, well, what if we did want to make it viable for that one person to play PvP multiplayer? I've seen some servers do, like, wipes, where the server wipes every certain period of time so that a really entrenched single group gets mixed up and everyone has to kind of start from square one every so often. I think it's only a partial solution. Uh, it's more addressing the symptom and not the root cause. Like, yeah, you set back the big group, but they can just rebuild. And yeah, it's not addressing the core problem. And just as I was writing this, I had an idea. What if it was made so that the strongest group was heavily incentivized to add new players to their group? Like if every player started with some kind of unique resource and the big groups would be incentivized to take these new players in with open arms in order to get access to this resource. This way big groups would actually want new players to join them and they'd want to teach them how to play. And the game maybe would be a little bit more forgiving to those sort of casual newcomers. It does sound like it could be exploited with new character spam, but yeah, it was just a quick thought I had while writing this. Maybe you have an idea. Uh, I'd love to hear it on the episode discussion channel in the community Discord. Let's do a quick summary of today's episode. Today we did a genre study on survival games. Some examples of games in the survival genre are Minecraft, Ark, DayZ, and Subnautica. The core mechanics of survival games are resource gathering, crafting, building shelters, caring for your character's needs, and surviving environmental hazards and other players. But remember, the core strength of these games is not built in the mechanics. It's in the dynamics. Dynamics like satisfying progression loops, starting with nothing and slowly gathering better gear for building bigger bases, feels extremely rewarding. It's also conveniently broken up into short-term goals like getting food and water, and long-term goals like building a castle. Another strong dynamic can come from the social interactions and the roleplay in multiplayer survival games. Crazy villains, wholesome characters, emergent roleplay with real people. Games like DayZ shine due to the social interactions despite its clunky mechanics. Maybe the strongest dynamic of these games is the ability for the player to be free to set their own goals and approach challenges however they want. They can even decide the challenges. And these open possibilities can even be presented in extremely closed environments like Raft. Now we did mention a few weaknesses of the genre. Uh, remember to get the resource generation pacing right. Offering ways for the player to increase their gather speed is a good way to slide that ratio into the Goldilocks zone, somewhere where it's not so slow that it grinds the game to a halt, but it's not so fast that it feels unrewarding. If you're going to make a multiplayer survival game, know that PvP is likely going to be unbalanced due to the power dynamics that reflect real life. Entrenched players with more time and resources dominate. 
the most straightforward way to overcome that is just to have a balanced and fun single player mode. But maybe with the combination of server wipes and clever design, you can figure something else out to better balance that PvP dynamic. All right, and with that, I'm going to end today's episode. I hope this was a good one. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. I really like playing these games. I think it would be really fun to make one of these games, and it sounds like it might even be commercially viable. Maybe I'll add this on my radar of potential projects. I feel like I already have a long list of potential projects, but who knows? Maybe I can throw one more on there. It's not like I need any more potential projects, though, because I'm already falling behind on the ones I have. I'm definitely aware of the slower release schedule for the podcast. I'm trying my hardest. It's just, uh, well, we have a lot of stuff uh, going on. And to be honest with you all, I'm feeling a little burnt out. I wouldn't say so much on any one thing specifically. It's just all of it together is overwhelming me. So yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not quitting the podcast or anything. I'll keep cranking them out, but the release schedule might be a little <laughs> a little bumpy for a while. Anyways, thank you all for your continued support. Sometimes when I'm feeling burned out like this, I go read the reviews, and yeah, you all have been very kind in the reviews. It's hearing how much the information uh, is helping, and that this the hard work is not going to waste. I think that's the kind of thing that keeps me going so thank you for that thank you to the patrons for continuing to support like i said i'm gonna keep going and yeah we'll see where it ends up maybe my schedule will clear up some and i can go back to pumping out episodes either way that's gonna do it for me today i have been zachavelli hero brian is real i've seen him and i'll see you on the next episode of the game dev field guide